Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Online. If you are new, welcome. If not, welcome back. All right, so today we are talking about chapter six in the story. We spent the last five weeks in Genesis and Exodus, and now we're skipping over to Leviticus and Numbers and getting into the scriptures in Deuteronomy. And what we're going to do is talk about what happened after the nation of Israel didn't live up to their end of the covenant, the marriage agreement that God made with them at Sinai. And now they're out in their honeymoon period, wandering in the desert for 40 years until they come uh, into the promised land, until they're able to do that. And so what I want to ask you to do today is ask the question, why did that happen? What were those desert wanderings for? And what does it mean for us? And to flesh this out a little bit, we're going to look at some of the Psalms as well to understand what it was like to live in the desert. So in the end, we should have some implications for our lives because this story about God and his relationship to humanity and Israel is our story too. And he wants us to find our story in his story. To begin, I want to read to you from a very, very familiar psalm, Psalm 23, because this ties in directly with how we see the desert and God's provision in the desert. So we're going to read that now, and afterwards we'll dive in a little bit deeper uh, to what we're talking about here. So, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So last week, the people of God were literally on this kind of spiritual high moment. Uh, I'm sure many of you have had one of those in your, in your lifetime, but uh, maybe it was like a, a time where you felt really on fire for God or close to him. Hopefully you've had that. But the problem with those moments is that our faith never gets fully defined in those spaces. In fact, it seems easy to follow God in kind of these spiritually high moments. And kind of counterintuitively, what I want to tackle today is this notion that, uh, that our faith gets defined in the desert, in the hard and dry moments of our lives. So if you recall last week, we talked about this spiritually high moment in the experience of the Israelite people where they basically went through a marriage ceremony between themselves and God. They are uh, his kingdom of priests and a holy nation now. They have a covenant, a ketuvah, a marriage agreement that they've agreed to and that's made up of these 10 commandments and many more actually than 10. Uh, they as a whole people got to hear God's voice. They heard him speak. Well, here's what happened next in Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 6. The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, which is just another name from Mount Sinai, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in the Aravah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev, all, and along the coast, to the land of the Canaanites, and to Lebanon, as far as the great river of Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. So he tells them they have to leave. And the question is, why? Because we don't want to leave when everything's good with us and God. We don't want to leave that place when things are good with us and him. And when we're not there, we're wishing we could go back to that place, right? 
but our faith isn't defined there completely. God takes them out into the desert for what he calls their honeymoon, which kind of begs the question of all the places to go, how would you feel if your spouse brought you to the desert for your honeymoon? And what we have to understand is that Egypt, the place they've come from, was grand and rich and lush and larger than life and colorful. It was just magnificent. Egypt was this land for, for the eyes. If they'd had neon lights, Egypt would have been like the Strip in Las Vegas and New York and Paris and Rio and Hollywood combined, but spread throughout the whole country. This is, this is what Egypt looks like now. I want to show you these photos as we're talking about this. Now, in contrast, let me show you the Negev, uh, the desert where God took them. Uh, this is where the children of Israel walked. And it's kind of hard to see the lines and the dirt that crisscrossed across this photo. But there are these lines cut into the landscape like, like a trail, like a game path. Uh, they are the paths that people walked over and over centuries ago. If you go on a tour of this area, the tour guides will tell you that these are called, quote, paths of righteousness. And in those rocks on that barren ground, it's hard to see, but there are these little bitty tufts of grass. They're so small in this picture that you can't really see them, but they're there. And it's not the green bushes in the background that I'm talking about. It's smaller than that. Centuries ago, those little tufts of, of grass, that's what they would call green pasture. So if we go back to what Psalm 23 is envisioning when it says he leads me beside paths of righteousness and makes me lie down in green pastures, you know, we think of lush countryside, you know, like my son and I went on a, on a trek through the Olympics for like almost 50 miles this last summer. We got to see some beautiful landscape. And we, this, when we hear about this scriptures in Psalm 23, what it says being led beside these quiet waters, green pastures, we think of this, but nope, it's this. There's these, there's these things called acacia trees there in, in, in the 23rd Psalm, and also in Psalm 1, when we read about being planted by streams of water, being led by still waters, this is what we're talking about. If you're looking at this acacia tree, I know you, you, like, you can't see the water, but you know water was there at one point because the reason we know water is there or has been there is that the tree is green. This tree won't green out and bloom if water hasn't been there at some point in the year. This is basically what my view was like driving anywhere in Arizona as a kid where I grew up. This tree is located in the bottom of a wadi. In Arizona, we call it a dry stream bed or a wash. And when there does happen to be the rare storm at some point, this wash, this wadi fills with water. It might even be a flash flood through a place like this. But the point is this, the water's not there all the time. So when we think of being planted by a stream of water, being led by still waters, we think of a huge, magnificent maple or elm or oak tree planted by this rushing, gushing, perpetually flowing, bubbling brook, stream, or river. But that's not what it was. Here's a couple other photos. And what, what these don't give you is the sense of utterly desolate uh, nothingness that in places like this. And then there's the heat, just the waves of heat coming off everything in a desert like this. I mean, typically, this is also what it was like where I grew up in Arizona in terms of the heat. We're talking like triple-digit heat, like get everything done outside that has to be done outside around your yard or your lawn by, by 11 a.m. because by noon it's going to by that time it's going to be like 115 degrees it's that hot let me show you this next photo 
it's called a broom tree. <laughs> it's really just like a bush. Uh, and this is this is a special photo. This is a this is a picture of what's called in Hebrew. It's called a rot rotem. And what I want you to pay attention to is the shade that this tree casts. It's barely anything. You have to lie down underneath it to get in the shade. And one of the major metaphors the Hebrews learned from their time in the desert is this. God is always just enough. And the reason I'm showing you this is that God promised the Hebrew people, and it's expressed often in the Psalms, that he would be their shade. And we even have worship songs that express this today. I mean, God promises, promises to be our shade in the desert places. This tree, the broom tree, it's called, it's called shade in the desert. It's not a huge amount of shade. It's just enough, barely enough to help you rest for a while and then keep going. You can't stay underneath this thing all day. Imagine you're wandering all over the desert for 40 years, and this is all you can find for shade. But God is your shade in the desert. Not shade so you can stop working, but shade so that you can get rest, so that you can take the next step in your life. That's one of the metaphors we learn from Israel's wandering in the desert places. So this is, this is the Israelites' reality. They went from Egypt to the Negev, to this in the desert. Where do you even find food or water for a whole nation of people in a place like that? And God's like, this is our honeymoon. I'm taking you out, taking you to myself in the desert. He's like, I love this place. And they're like, no, it's not awesome. But this is where God takes them so that they can become people of the ears so that they can learn to hear God's voice. And by the way, it's pretty quiet out there in a place like this. I've heard there aren't even any bugs there making any noise. So at least even the bugs are like, no thanks, I don't want to be there. No insects, no birds, no wind, no wildlife, no sound. It is quiet so that they can learn to hear God speak. I would suggest that perhaps each time you and I lose sight of how to hear God speak, that when we forget to listen to his voice, that he leads us out into the desert so that we can learn to hear his voice again. Jump over to Deuteronomy chapter 8, uh, verse 1 with me. It says this, Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So what does this text tell us? Why does he lead them into the desert? First, we see it's so that they can learn to hear his voice. Second, it's so that they can be humbled. So we can be humbled. Moses is looking back on this experience and he says, he humbled you. So what happens in the desert? We get humbled. It's hard. It's not fun, but it's a good thing. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manha. <laughs> Does anybody know what manha means? What it is? Manna? Some scholars try to explain what this is and they'll say things like, well, you know, manna is, manna, manna is this Hebrew word that kind of means like flaky honey bread. It's kind of like they're pretending that it's a croissant or something, like a twice-baked almond croissant you get down at, you know, Bakery Nouveau. Nope. <laughs> the Hebrew word, and it's a Hebrew word that is still used 
today. And it literally means, what is it? Mana means, what is it? So the text says they looked at this stuff on the ground and they were like, I don't have a clue what this is. Do you know what it is? Manha? What is it? What is it, Mana? Sounds like a good name to me. Let's call it Mana. So they ate Mana, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And I want you to remember that phrase. Underline it in your scriptures. It says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is this humbling is a big deal. Sometimes we need to be humbled before we'll actually listen. It's one of these tensions about following God even now. He loves us so much that he brings us into the desert so that we can learn to hear him speak. I know so many people that want to follow God and they want to call themselves a follower of Jesus. They also want to pick and choose which words of Jesus is that they want to listen to. I'm only going to listen to these ones. But you can't actually do that. To follow the way of Jesus, you have to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And in the desert, you learn to do that. So the next passage, this is back in Exodus, right before God gives the Ten Commandments. The passage of Mount Sinai in Exodus 21 says that God spoke and he tells them all this stuff. And then at the beginning of Deuteronomy, you have Moses recalling to the Israelites what happened way back then. And he says, look, remember, God spoke. He spoke to all of us at, at Sinai. And then we followed God out into the desert. And this phrase God spoke is a super big deal. This is the same phrase we saw in Genesis 1 when God created the universe out of nothing. He spoke. And what happened? We, in that message, we said when he speaks, he created order out of chaos. And he does it again at Mount Sinai. He speaks and he gives these Ten Commandments, the Ketubah. He says, so we should expect more order to come from chaos. And that's the third thing we should expect in the desert. When God leads us there to hear his voice, when he speaks to us and we hear it, this should be true in our life as well. More order. More order in our lives. The more, the more that you let God speak to you, the more that he could speak into your life, the more order there will be. The more you will be able to have peace in your life. But to try and come be a part of a faith community that's trying to follow the ways of Jesus and only want to listen to the part of what Jesus says that you like and you want to cherry pick and just throw the rest away, that's just a train wreck waiting to happen. The more that we let God speak, the more that we have peace. And that does not mean that there's an absence of conflict. It means that our hearts are in order with God's heart. Things are right in our hearts, come what may. And when that happens, I don't have to freak out. Now I want to sum all this desert talk up, all the wanderings of Israel that you read in chapter 6 of the story this week by looking at a parallel passage in the New Testament. That parallel is kind of a very Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. That's the answer. The Jews at the time of Jesus were waiting and yearning and longing and looking for a new prophet who would come and save them. And the key point is that they were looking all the time when they should have been listening again. And I think that's part of the reason behind why Jesus continually uses this phrase in the Gospels. He keeps saying, he who has ears, let him hear. It's like a code. God is speaking to you if you pause long enough and listen so that you can hear him. And so while they're looking for this prophet that was foretold a long time ago in the Old Testament, Jesus walks onto the scene and he doesn't look anything like they want, but he speaks. 
And there's all these comparisons we can do now that are phenomenal, actually, between Jesus and Moses and the nation of Israel. When Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and comes back down, his face is shining and glowing. And the same thing happens to Jesus in Matthew 17. It says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. The nation of Israel is baptized in the Red Sea, literally submerged, if you will, and rescued and saved by coming through the waters. Jesus comes from Nazareth in Galilee to be baptized by John in the Jordan, which is out in the desert, and he te he's tested there. After he gets goes through the water, he's tested there for 40 days in the desert, just like Israel and Moses were in the desert for 40 years, wandering, learning to listen, learning to hear God's voice. And when Jesus is there, Satan tempts him in various ways. And when he says, turn those stones into bread, you're the son of God. What's the problem? Just do it. Turn those stones into bread. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus chooses to be a person of the ears which I love because Moses and the Israelites didn't choose that. They grumbled and complained. They wouldn't trust the Lord's voice. They wouldn't trust where he was taking them. They didn't like it. It was uncomfortable. It was inconvenient. And Jesus succeeds where they failed. He is a new Moses leading a new exodus for the salvation of all humanity. And so he's with his people trying to lead them like Moses, trying to get them to listen and hear God's voice because they are still in the desert when Jesus comes along. And when you're in the desert, you're hot and you're sweaty and you're sunburned and you're miserable and you're thirsty. So I want to examine this particular scene that ensues with Jesus in the middle of a massive crowd at the festival of Sukkot. The festival of booths is what it's called in the Bible, but it's this Jewish harvest festival, a harvest festival where people are thanking God for the rain that has come and asking him to provide rain in the desert for the future of their crops, for their future as a people. And it's a week-long festival, and all the people are up on the Temple Mount going crazy. They're waving palm branches. There are hundreds of thousands of people doing this. And when they, when they wave those branches, it sounds, when they wave all the branches together, it sounds like the sound of rain falling. And at this one particular point, the priest will get up with a pitcher to pour water on the altar uh, up at the Temple Mount, and everyone just stops, and it's dead silent, and nobody speaks. And it's at this moment, and you can find this whole scene in John 6 through 8, Jesus stands up and he says, and he says, it says this, he says in a loud voice, which means he's shouting in this into this dramatic silence, he says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me, and streams of living water will come out of them. I mean, it's amazing. But what he promises there is this. He never says that you are going to get full. What he says is, if you're thirsty, follow me. And you're going to be the water in somebody else's desert. If you drink from my cup, streams of living water will flow out of you to others. And somehow, that's going to transform you too. And that's what we're called to. If you're, if you're not willing to come to terms with that as a Christian, well... This is what I think will happen. God loves you so much that he's going to bring you out into the desert to spend some time with him so that you'll learn to hear his voice. So I would just invite you to have that conversation with God in your life. Like, have you maybe tried to make this whole Jesus thing, this whole Christian thing about you and what you get and what you want? 
and how it feeds your needs and all your problems and, and your life and your wounds and your concerns and your this and that. I mean, or are you willing to say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you and I'm going to choose to be water in the deserts of the people around me. I encourage you to spend some time talking with God about this uh, this week with others. Spend some time praying about it as well. I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Online. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus and produce good fruit, my friends.